This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. But, um, but you can see in your notes, today we are going to talk about God's design for sexuality. It's about as quiet as a middle school classroom. A <laughs> couple of giggles, yeah. Um, we've been talking about God's design for marriage. Dad's done a couple of series, the last few series, on God's design for different things. And, you know, so I, I completely understand there's two things that we don't like to talk about in church. That's money and sex, right? People don't like anybody messing with their money or anybody messing with their sex. True? But these are two of the topics the Bible talks about more than any other. The Bible talks about money and sex a great deal. You would say, do we really need to talk about this right here, right now? Yeah, we really do. We really do. How many of you know we live in a um, sex-obsessed culture? And how many of you know that has crept into the church? And our culture has has shaped our views on sexuality. And sometimes we forget to go back into God's Word and see what it says. And sometimes we've got to rein things back in a little bit in our own hearts and our own lives. So we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about these things head on because, look, if we can't talk about it in church, then where are we going to talk about it? You know, I remember my parents having to talk with me on a number of occasions, but I probably learned just as much from school, from the bathroom walls. Seriously. We need to be talking to our kids about these things. My kids are in here this morning, even Aaron. 11 years old, man, you better be talking to your kid by the time they're 11 years old. So we're going to talk about these things. So to jump on in, I, I, I've been processing this for weeks. A couple weeks ago, I heard a message that was, a series actually, that was done at High Point. And the first message this guy did was on a subject called sexual atheism. Now, I don't know if any of you heard this, but I actually, I, man, I, I listened to it about three or four times. I'd never heard of sexual atheism. And actually, as we continue on, if you've heard that message, you'll, you'll hear I, I stole uh, some of his points in there. But we're going to see where God leads us today. See, we know what atheism is, we, and you've got your notes actually there in your service guide. Atheism is the, del- is the disbelief or lack of belief in God. So as I looked it up and went in, sexual atheism is the disbelief or lack of God regarding our sex life. We love God. We love Jesus We love our church, but when it comes to the topic of sex, our sex life, our sexuality, we want to cover our ears and close our eyes, and we don't want anybody touching that. We want sex on our own terms. And I'll be honest with you, I think that most Christians are completely out of tune with their sexuality today when it comes to God's design for it. Sean and I have been... We've done a lot of marriage counseling over the last several years. We've done a lot of premarital counseling and quite a few weddings. And let me tell you, I at this point, I am, when we do premarriage counseling, I just automatically assume now that couples having sex. 90, 95% of the time, it's almost always true. We're, I'm not talking about people who aren't believers. I'm talking about people born and raised in the church. Who, who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior and are maybe serving God in every other area of their life except for this one. And in reality, 
It's pretty astounding. I, uh, in, once I heard, I, I thought maybe this guy coined the term sexual atheism, but it turned out he didn't. I went back and I read and read and read, and I found uh, last month Charisma Magazine released an article on sexual atheism, and I, I just got a, a piece of this I want to read to you. It says, in a recent study conducted by ChristianMingle.com, Christian singles between the ages of 18 and 59 were asked, would you have sex before marriage? The response, 63% of the single Christian res respondents indicated yes. In my 30 years of youth and adult ministry, this is as unfiltered, direct, and honest a question as can be. It is equally honest to say that nearly 9 out of 10 self-proclaimed Christian singles are in practice sexual atheists. In other words, to them, God has nothing to say on the subject of sexuality of any consequence or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. It is the ultimate oxymoron. A person who once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them in all things can also believe simultaneously that he should not, cannot, and will not inform or have an opinion about their thinking or living sexually. It reminds me of those famous red letters in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? There's a disconnect between identity and activity. Um, excuse me. I know that sometimes there's topics that the Bible seems that it's not real clear on. I know, especially as a non-denominational church, we have people from all different backgrounds here. And we all have a little bit different conviction. We all have a little bit different interpretation of Scripture. Let me tell you, this is not one of those topics. When it comes to sexuality, the Bible is not gray. The Bible is crystal clear. It's black and white. But it's an area that our culture has made a very gray area, and that has crept into the church. And so sexuality in the church has become a very gray area. We've got to be willing to hear God out and put our preconceptions aside. And understanding that God's word is always a safe place to go. God's word does not condemn. And I guarantee you, most of us have some sort of sexual baggage that we're carrying. Something from our past. So, you're not alone. We're all in this together. And we've got to understand that God wants to speak into this area of our life. And we've got to understand something too. When we talk about this, we're talking about the subject of sexual atheism. I'm not just referring to the teenagers in the back seat of a car. I'm referring to good, solid Christian marriages. It's crept all the way in to our Christian marriages today. You do realize that just because you're married and not committing adultery, it still doesn't mean that you're living your life, your, your sexuality, your sexual life according to God's design. Isn't that true? Man, it's quiet. Man. Man. We live in a very sexually charged, sex-obsessed culture. And it's easy to let our opinions of sexuality be molded by our culture rather than God's Word. And it's probably affected us all in one way or the other. I mean, guys, I understand that it's totally in our face all the time. I, I, the other day, I got on... Highway 78 going up toward Memphis. And, you know, once you pass Craft Road, there's a big old billboard for a junkyard. And it's got this woman in this 
skin-tight shirt on, and you're sitting there going, a junkyard? You know, and, and guys, I know, it, we, visual stimulation is a tough thing to fight, and we look up and we see a crazy billboard that's advertising a junkyard. It's in our face all the time, isn't it? We went back uh, a number of weeks ago, we went to a, a Grizzlies game, me and Dad and Aaron and Ryan and George and, and Emery. We, we were at this Grizzlies game. I, I've been to several, and I tell you, we, we, I think we just become so numb. You know, the Grizz girls come out on the floor, and it just got me thinking, really thinking for the first time because my 11-year-old son's sitting next to me, and it kind of made me stop and think for a second because I noticed some girls that were wearing much more than a two-piece bathing suit, gyrating, doing it, you know, whoa. My eyes diverted. Oh, Jesus, Woo. Hallelujah. It's everywhere. And we excuse it away. We go, well, they're cheerleaders. And they're, you know, and that's just part of the game. And that's whatever. It's kind of like, it's kind of like the frog in the kettle. <laughs> I think that's the way we've been. You've heard of that, the frog in the pot. If you put a, try and dump a frog in a boiling hot vat of water, it's going to jump immediately out. But if you put it in cold water, it'll sit there and you can slowly turn the heat up and it will burn itself to death. It won't move because it doesn't realize slowly that heat is increasing. In one way or the other, I think that most of us have probably become numb to our culture in one way or the other, and probably in some areas of our hearts become sexual atheists in one way or the other. We're not listening to what God has to say. And our society many times has more influence over our views of sex than God does. And here's the funny thing. God's the one that created sex. And that's actually the first point in your notes there. Number one, God is more pro-sex than you are. I understand you love sex. Yeah, it's great. God loves it more. He thinks it's a great idea. He made it. It was his design and his plan. Many times, I think, because of the sexual immorality and all the things we see around us, I think the church has kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater and almost begun to lump sexuality into a bad category. Does that make sense? It's automatically frowned upon. It's something we don't talk about. We're hush-hush about it all the time. God designed sex. He loves the idea of sex. But we've reacted to our culture and its perversions instead of God's word. We've got to understand, you know, that the Bible is, the Bible is relevant. We think, I've heard people say, the Bible just doesn't understand. The Bible was written in a different age. It is a different day and time in which we live now. The writers of the Bible can't possibly understand what I'm going through and what I'm exposed to every day right now in this society, in this culture where I'm at. We're going to start by turning to 1 Corinthians 6. If you want to go ahead and turn there, or it'll be on your screen. I want you to understand something here in 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing this letter to the 1 Corinthian church, to the 1 Corinthian church, <laughs> to, to the church in Corinth. And I want to make a point here for a minute that there was a tremendous amount of sexual immorality in the first century. I saw this best back, some of you know, several months ago, uh, Zach Davis and I were blessed to go to, to Italy. We were in Italy for a week, and we both would agree that our, 
best day there was the day we took the bullet train to Naples and we toured Pompeii. And so many of you know about Pompeii. You know that you know, Mount Vesuvius erupted 2,000 years ago and buried it in ash, and they've dug it out, and it is, it, it's incredible. I remember walking in, and the first, the first uh, place you come to as you're walking into the city is a, is a spa. You know, spas were big in, in Italy and Greece. And you walk into the spa, and I remember just standing there, and I'm standing on this mosaic floor, and I'm thinking 2,000 years ago, somebody placed each of these little pieces on that floor, and I'm, I'm sitting there looking at it, I'm going, my goodness, I shouldn't even be standing here, you know? And we're standing inside this spa, that, and, and all the paintings and everything are still on the walls, and it just looks incredible. And I, I get my camera, and I start taking a few pictures of these paintings of people on the wall, and I hesitate, and I was like, what is that? And I, what are they doing? And I turn, and Zach grabs me, and he's like, you probably don't want to take pictures in here. And I, I was like, oh my goodness. It was the most sexually explicit stuff. It would give our modern-day porn a run for its money. I was all around the walls. This was what decorated the spas. They came in each day. I was blown away. And by the way, they had the prostitutes in there, too. I mean, let's take care of your health needs, right? Right? You realize that in the first century, Christians think, I mean, this homosexual movement, this is a new thing. No, it's not. It, it was common then. Absolutely common. Prostitution was common. As a matter of fact, it was no big deal for the dad and his son to leave the house for the evening and go visit the prostitutes. Do that a few days a week. Let me... In Pompeii, another thing that surprised me, there was brothels everywhere. Now how you knew they were brothels? I don't know if any of you have ever been to Pompeii. Number one, you knew when you were getting close to one because there was a certain uh, carved out of stone along the street, a certain part of the male anatomy. He referred to it as a phallus that pointed in the streets. I promise the direction to the closest brothel. I came to a crossroads, and they're pointing different directions. I promise. I promise. And you knew when you reached a brothel because there was one sticking out of the side of the building. I promise. Promise. This was normal. Incest was normal. Bestiality was normal normal. If you're in here and you don't know what that is, ask your dad later. The mom asked the son, where's dad at? He's out in the barn again. (laughs) That was normal. So Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. And understand, Corinth was, was at that time the largest city in Greece. And it was a port city, so there were ships coming in and out, and there was all this commerce going on, sailors in and out, and there was all this busyness going on. And Paul comes in, and he starts a church, and all these signs and miracles are being done, and people are coming to Jesus in droves. And he's introducing this new thing called Christianity. And people are jumping at the opportunity. They're coming to Jesus. They, they were hungry. And... They're coming into the church, and they're bringing all their baggage. They were bringing all their backgrounds. They were bringing their pagan religions and practices with them. 
all of being brought, brought into the church. And understand, sex was very much a part of the religious culture in Corinth. I did a, a study on this at one time. The Temple of Aphrodite was the biggest temple in Corinth. And do you know the Temple of Aphrodite actually employed, actually most of them were slaves, that uh, were considered the sacred prostitutes of the temple. Sex was a part of the worship. Many of these prostitutes, these girls, hadn't even reached menstruation. And part of your worship to Aphrodite is you came in and you met up with one of these sacred prostitutes in the temple. There was a mountain you could go to, and you'd go up on top of the mountain, and you would meet up with a sacred prostitute as worship to Aphrodite. Our church is pretty diverse, all different backgrounds, but could you imagine if half of our congregation came from a background where sex was part of the worship service? Can you imagine the questions that Paul was fielding in this whole thing? You understand now why he wrote some of the things he did in 1 and 2 Corinthians. He was going, whoa, we've got to address some stuff. <laughs> some of you thought you went through conflicts when your church you grew up in went from traditional hymns to contemporary music. Can we have sex in church? No. That's not acceptable. So Paul's trying to help in Corinth in the first century and understanding the first century Corinth, the point I'm trying to make, not much different than 21st century America. I would argue that we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there as a nation. 1 Corinthians 6.18, finally to it, it says, flee from sexual immorality. That's the Greek word. Y'all know the Greek word for sexual immorality is pornea. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And Paul is really elevating Sexual sins here. He's saying that sex is really a big deal. He's saying this is not a side issue, something that we overlook. This is not something that's supposed to be normal and common, all the sexual immorality. This is something that we've got to address and we've got to get God's view on. Now, I told you sexual immorality, it's a Greek word, pornea. It simply means illicit sexual intercourse such as adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, etc. Anything that God would consider to be a sinful expression of sexuality is pornea. Make sense? All these things are not acceptable in God's eyes. So we see there, you're looking at 1 Corinthians 6.18. What does he tell us to do? He says to flee from sexual immorality. This doesn't say jog. It says to flee. And actually the word flee that's used there indicates like as if you are under attack. You flee. You get up and you run as hard as you can the other direction. He did not say that you can probably handle it yourself. He didn't say, wait it out, it might get better. He said to flee. And, you know, there's so much sexual immorality today. Just look at the movies in our movie theaters right now. Look at the books on our bookshelves. You ever done a search for one of your relatives or a long-lost high school friend? Does it just happen to be a girl in Google? <gasps> just type in their name and, you know, the things that comes up sometimes. It's all around us. So my point, number two in your notes is, God's word is relevant in first century Corinth and in 21st century America. People today say the Bible is old-fashioned. No, it is cutting edge. It is cutting edge. 
Why did Paul say to flee from sexual immorality? Back there, um, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. It says all other sins a man commits are outside his body. So it offends and affects others, right? And it says, but he who sins sexually, pornea, taking sex out of the, out of the bounds that God created it to be in, he who sins sexually sins against his own body. It says you sin against yourself. Do you realize what Paul does here? He gets sexual sin and he puts it in a completely separate category from all other sin. He actually elevates it. In a way, he says, it's almost implied that it's a greater sin than the others. All other sin, you know, he separates. This one he says, but in this type of sin, you sin against yourself. Now I know, you know, we flip out. No, no, all sins are equal in God's eyes, brother. Yes, I understand that. And the fact that it only takes one sin to be guilty, right, before God. However, there are greater consequences for certain things that we do, correct? And Paul, it looks like here, he is separating. He's separating sexual sin, and he's putting it in a different category than all the others. Because it's not a sin within your, it's not a, a sin that just affects others. This is a sin against yourself. It creates a wound in you, and that wound is shame. Anytime we take our sexuality out of the context that God created it to be in, we inflict a wound in our own life, in our own heart, and that wound is shame. We're going to go back for a minute, back to the beginning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to go back to the garden, to the very first, the very first couple, the very first married couple. And we've talked about it in the last couple of weeks in God's design for marriage. Dad's talked about that, about how God designed, pulled the, the rib out of the man and, and formed the woman and that kind of thing. We're going to go to uh, Genesis 2, verses 23-25. And so Eve has just been brought before Adam. And then Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So I want you to see a little bit of a process here. First, it says that he looked at her and he said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He is getting Eve. He sees her. He sees God's brought her before him, and he chooses her. And he says, you are part of me. He calls her his very own. He commits himself to her in that moment. Does that make sense? And then he establishes that connection in that going on, that leaving father and mother, being united to his wife, they become one flesh, in that they become a family. And it says they were united. Uh, in, in, in the King James it says cleave. Their man would cleave to his wife. It's just representation of a, of a great commitment or covenant. This isn't something, something to be taken lightly. This is that till death do us part thing, right? And then it says, they will become one flesh. And there's a number of things that are implied here, but it does imply sex. They become one flesh. Make sense? So bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He commits himself to her. They become a family. They have the covenant. They commit themselves physically to one another. They become one flesh there. Understanding that first there was commitment and then there was the sexual union. Adam chose Eve. He declared his commitment to her. Leave father and mother. Commit. Give my life. 
And then we see they become one flesh. And in Scripture, we always see that. We see the commitment always comes before intimacy does. It's the way it was designed from the beginning. And it's a radical thought. for the. It was a radical thought for the first century church, and it's a radical thought today. And, you know, we look at this and we think, well, why did God make it this way? Well, we go to that last one. It says, uh, the man and his wife were naked and they felt no shame. God's design for marriage was that there be no shame. That we wouldn't have those wounds of shame inflicted by sexual immorality. Understanding that God is not anti-sex, God is anti-shame. Psychologists discovered, they discovered more recently that shame is one of the most dangerous of human emotions. They used to think that guilt and shame were the same thing, but guilt can be at least somewhat productive because we know we've done wrong and it can kind of motivate us to try and move forward and make things right. Uh, but there's a difference. See, shame, and guilt says I did wrong. Shame says I am wrong. You see the difference? Shame says there's something wrong with me. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. It's an attack against our well-being and understanding that God created us in his image. And so really, it's, it's an assault against the image of God. Shame is. And many times, shame ends up creating a loop. I'm already dirty. I've already done it. What's the point now? I can't take it back. I've already given away my virginity. I can't ever have that back again. I might as well sleep with him again. Sexual immorality always cheapens sex and makes you feel cheap. It's cheap because God designed it to be within the confines of marriage, and that's where it makes you feel valuable. God designed it so that, so that we would come into marriage and experience the thrill of someone choosing us and committing our lives to us and then committing themselves physically to us. Our culture tells us that true intimacy comes from sex. Nothing can be further from the truth. God made us for more. God made us with unbelievable value and worth. He created us for intimacy. Intimacy, you'll see in your notes, is to be fully known and to be fully loved. Fully loved. Sex is a part of being fully known. But when we take it outside the context of what God created it to be in, we're missing out on the fully loved part. If we would embrace commitment first and then sex, we would experience what God designed for us. And let me tell you, the safest place to experience sexual intimacy is within the confines of marriage. Do you realize if, in, if, if we today, if the entire world decided this moment, we're going to do it God's way. From this moment onward, we will never again have sex outside of marriage. you realize all venereal diseases would be gone in one generation? All STDs, they'd be gone in one moment. The things we experience in the world like that are a result of our bad decisions as the human race. When we don't do things God's way, there's always consequences. God wants to protect us from shame. I'll prove it to you. I'm going to make a statement, but first let me say this. 94% of men admit to having looked at porn on a consistent basis at some point. In a recent study, 33% of church men admit uh, of churched men 
admit, I'm reading this wrong, 33% of church attending men confess they might be addicted to porn. So let me say this. Men, when you get hold of that porn that you've secretly got stashed away or that link on your phone or whatever it may be, and you get away to that place by yourself, and nobody knows, and you have your little moment, how do you feel afterwards in that moment afterwards? Woo, that was awesome, yeah. No. I think generally we kind of hang our head and be like, I am such an idiot. How can I sit here and do this again? Because we're experiencing shame. I'm not going to ask if anybody can relate. Ladies, how do you feel after you, for the first time, sleep with your boyfriend because you're afraid he's going to leave you? Do you feel all loved and cherished inside? You feel cheap and used, right? Shame. Ladies, how do you feel when you fantasize a man that's, about a man that's not your husband? You feel all valuable? No. Generally, more hungry for intimacy. God wants to protect us from that shame. Every time we step out of God's plan for our sexuality, we inflict another wound of shame on ourselves. And as I said before, probably all of us carry some type of regret about our sexuality, about things we've done in the past. There's good news. Hebrews 12.2, you got it in your notes there. Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have a world of people suffering from shame on some level because they stepped outside of God's plan. And then you've got Jesus. And we look at the scripture there in Hebrews 12.2. It says he, that he willingly went to the cross for the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? The joy was what was on the other side. The joy was that we would be free from our sin and shame. On that cross, he accepted all of our shame. We say Jesus died for our sins. He also died for our shame. It says that he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. He hated all the shame that he had to die for. Jesus died on the cross taking our shame so that we wouldn't have to live with it. For everybody that feels shame because of your past, we've got to remember that Jesus died to take that from us, to give us a fresh start, where we can surrender our sexuality to him and we can be free of that. Amen? That's what he wants. You may be a person that feel like, you may feel like that you've messed up so much sexually that you could never experience true intimacy. There's nothing further from the truth. All we've got to do is surrender to God's plan. Jesus died to take that shame. All we've got to do is come to him and say, Lord, I repent. I'm coming home to you. I'm going to do things your way. Then he takes our shame. We feel his love and we understand again the value that he placed within us, the value that he sees in us. We see how worthy we are. Sexual immorality results in shame, which brings us to number three in your notes. 
Shame becomes insecurities, which are barriers to intimacy. Listen, the more insecure you are, the less able you are to have intimacy in relationships. We all deal with insecurities on some level or another, right? Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve messed up before God. What's the first thing they did? They covered themselves and hid, right? Because of shame. Many of us have been hiding from God because of the issues of shame in our life. God wants to restore things in our lives. And God's plan to restore us is purity. God can give us purity again. And understanding, we think of purity once again to be for the single person. Right? True love waits. Purity, are you pure? Purity also applies to married people just the same. Purity is for all people in every stage of life. That is, was and is God's plan. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. I want to take that first part right there. It said marriage should be honored by all. We don't live in a marriage-honoring society. Um, you know, obviously, if you're married... You should honor that. If you're not married, you should honor the institution of marriage and other people as you relate to other people. If you're single, you should never go along with or begin flirting with somebody that's married. Never. Because that dishonors the institution of marriage that God created. It's sexually immoral. We have to be careful the entertainment we take in. The entertainment we take in in the world today makes marriage out to be something fleeting, something that, that we you know, can, can walk away from in a moment because of the, the slightest little indiscretion. We've got to be careful because God said to honor marriage. It should be honored by all. That's it, number four. Talking about purity. God's purity plan for the single person is abstinence. I know that's a tough one. No, it is. Like I said, I know every engaged couple that comes into us, I, I just assume they're sleeping together. I know. And I remember before I was married, and I remember it's difficult. But it was God's plan then, and it's still God's plan today. It's not a gray area. It's black and white. That part of you that has to, as a, as a single person that has to exert self-control and not engage in sexual activity, that fight, that battle, that struggle, that is something that's supposed to be temporary until the day that you commit your life to someone in marriage. Some people would say, well, what if I never get married? What if it never happens? Well, with God's grace, you'll continue to fight that battle, knowing that he's got your back and he's walking with you right by your side all the way. Number five, God's purity plan for the married person is full sexual expression with their spouse for life. We would engage in pure sex. Sexual expression in marriage is meant to be permanent between a husband and a wife. It's meant to be fully experienced. All the desire and all the drive for sex that we find, we should find the cure for that within the boundaries of marriage. If we're not married, we do not express ourselves sexually. Why? Because God knows that it will bring shame to our lives. It inflicts wounds on our lives. And shame 
creates those insecurities that even affects our relationship with God. Because he's the one that we're supposed to have an intimate relationship with. We have shame in our life and we do get married. We bring that shame and those insecurities in our marriage. And our intimate life will never be what it should or could be. We can be free. But I'm saying you carry those things in with you. But it's so difficult. You don't know what I have to deal with every day. Sex is everywhere. What do I do with all this pent-up stress? Well, jumping on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, jump on down a chapter. Remember, Paul is teaching these principles in the city of Corinth, first century, and they're saying these same things. They're saying, okay, we've been able, we've had all these different ways to try and find sexual fulfillment. We received Jesus. You're saying there's just one way now. How in the world do we do that? How do you expect us to do that? If we want to have sex in 21st century America, this is God's plan for us. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 5. Verse 2 says, But since there is so much immorality, sexual immorality, happening all around us, each man should, ha- should have sex. That's actually what it's implying here. Each man should have sex with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Paul said, You've got to bring it in. This is where you bring all that pent-up stress. It's to be found within the boundaries of your marriage. What do we do with all this sexual immorality? We take it home. But there's temptation everywhere. Yeah, there definitely is. Every advertiser and every marketer in the world today have found that a woman's body is the best way to sell something. True? They're asking Paul all these questions. I mean, they always had the prostitutes up on the mountain. Go do some worship. Paul is saying no. He's saying go focus on your marriage. If you are handling your marriage properly, if you have the relationship that you should have, all of your sexual fulfillment should be found right there in your marriage. Take your sex drive home. He said, husbands, give yourselves to your wives, and wives, give yourselves to your husbands. Keep it in marriage. This was God's plan for a sex-obsessed culture. Sex and marriage uh, serves as a holy purpose to protect and promote intimacy. I thought that was an awesome statement I heard. Verse 3 there says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Some verses we have a hard time obeying. That's not one that men usually have a hard time with. True? Verse 4 the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. I think the King James says yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. He yields it to his wife. In a godly marriage, our desire sexually should be to fulfill our spouse. This is where you begin to have problems. When we talk to couples that begin to have, prob- begin to have sexual issues, many times it's because one is selfish and the other feels used. It's not about us. When we're doing things properly, our whole desire should be to, be to fulfill our wife in every area, including sexually. Sexual immorality is a serious enemy, and to fight this, we have got to give ourselves to each other in marriage. Paul is saying, yield yourself in light of the overwhelming sexual immorality in the society around you. If you are married, God has called you 
to help your spouse fight sexual temptation by giving yourself to the other. When spouses do not give themselves to one another and there's no sexual fulfillment, people begin to find sexual fulfillment other places. Purity is not just running away from sexual immorality. Purity is running toward our marriages. It's running toward our spouse. Verse 5 says, Do not deprive one another except by mutual consent and only for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That's interesting. How many, uh, <laughs> how many ladies are becoming prayer warriors? Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent only for a time that you may devote yourself to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Hey, guys, this is just what the Bible says. Amen? <laughs> and married couples, look, in light of that statement, what if, what if your sex life did increase? What if the frequency doubled? Might watch a little less TV and get some exercise. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? Right? In that sermon I was listening to, he made a statement I thought was awesome. He said, the ethic of sexuality and marriage should go like this. Always available, always interested. Because of the times that we live in. Because the sexual pressure is so great. That's number six in your notes. Married couples should be always available, always be available, and always interested in each other. Now look, if you're married, here's the reality of things. Especially if you're married and have kids, you're not going to have sex every day. It's just not going to happen, right? Um, but this scripture does tell us that we should generally try not to deny our spouse. It says that we should have self-control. We've got to realize we've got to have self-control. We've got to stop and remember, look, recognize when your spouse comes home and is tired and stressed out. You don't want to be going and making demands anyway, Right? And we've got to stop and remember that it's not about us anyway. It's about sexual fulfillment for our spouse. True? I don't know how many times I have heard men, I mean, so many times I've heard a man say, yeah, I did mess up and do that, but she just wasn't meeting my needs at home. Ladies, listen. Your husband... Your husband's bad behavior never is and never will be your fault, ever. And it doesn't matter what he says, because we've talked to so many wives that felt so guilty because their husband piled on the guilt. What you do or do not do will never make you an excuse for bad behavior on your spouse's part. But you are called to be his partner and to be there for him and to help him to stay sexually pure in his life. Let me say this too. Husbands, if you're not loving your wife like Christ loved the church, if you're not fulfilling the role in your family that you should, don't expect her to go jumping at your sexual advances. And let me tell you the worst thing I've seen so many times. Please, please don't go beating her head with 1 Corinthians. Don't go quoting scriptures. Well, you know what the Bible says. That never, ever goes well. It's terrible. Husbands, your wife's misconduct is never your fault. They make their own choices. But you are to be her partner. 
and you are to be there to help keep her sexually pure. You've got to always be available and always interested. And let me mention this. You realize that our marriages, our marriages is just a shadow of what God's done for us. When Jesus went to the, went to the cross, God was proposing to us. He committed himself, all right. He committed his whole life in a moment. And let me tell you, God is always available and he's always interested. He went to that cross and committed himself so that we could have an intimate relationship with him. He's always available and he is always interested. Why should our marriages be any different? God's opinion of sex, he loves the idea of sex. He's not anti-sex for one moment. He's anti-shame. His plan for our life is purity, whether we're single or whether we're married. It's one of our gifts for him. But we see because of the day and age in which we live, we have to be very careful. And we've got to know what God says. And we've got to do it his way. Amen? Woo! Seems heavy. Shauna said last night, are you done? I was like, it's heavy. Oh, man. <laughs> Y'all all right? Let's bow our heads. Let's bow our heads for just a minute. I, you know, we, we, we close every service given the opportunity to receive Jesus, to get your life right with him. And if you don't know Jesus, that is your first step. First thing you do is you surrender your life to him. Let me help you understand something here. We've been spending a little bit more time on our altar calls lately. We've been talking as a staff, and I think many times we have made salvation out to be way too easy. We've given a, we haven't given a good picture of what salvation really is. For years, the church has said, all you've got to do is pray this little prayer. Jesus, come into my heart. I'm sorry for my sins. Amen. And, we, and then we rejoice that somebody's entered the kingdom. Let me tell you that this is not something easy. Not one time in the New Testament did anybody ever pray a prayer to receive Jesus. They did it. They called him Lord because he was Lord of their life. He's like, that's just like Jesus said in that scripture. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? They, when they received Jesus, when the apostles came and the early church came to them and presented the good news of the gospel, they began calling him Lord because they made him Lord of their life. They said, I'm not going to live my life my way or do things my way one more day. I'm going to follow what you say, Jesus, and I'm going to do things your way. I would ask you today, is Jesus Lord of your life? And guys, it's, it's very discouraging sometimes. Sexual immorality we see around us and that that's even crept into the church I would invite you if you haven't to make, light, make the Lord make Jesus Lord of that area today as well what are you saying that if I'm 
doing something that's considered sexually immoral in the Bible, I'm going to hell. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. But when we get to the place of saying, well, God understands. He knows what I've been through. And we embrace that sin and we don't feel that conviction in our heart anymore. It doesn't tear us up inside even a little bit. We've got to stop and examine whether or not Jesus is really Lord in our life. Because when we commit sin, it should, it, it should, it should give you a stomachache. It should bother you if Jesus is Lord of your life. We're going to pray a prayer together. And I would just invite you, if you've never received Jesus, this is your moment. And you're saying, Lord, I'm not going to do things my way anymore. I'm going to do them your way, and I'm going to give my life to you. And when I die, I'm not going to fear death. I'm going to face it head on, and I'm going to belong to you for all eternity. I'm going to be with you. If you've looked at your heart and you'd be like, you know what? I I have so much in my heart that Jesus isn't Lord of. I want to rededicate my life today. If that's you, this prayer is for you as well. You may be a person that's just stepped away from church and you're new in here, and you can't believe they're talking about sex this morning. (laughs) But you have found life, and you feel something you haven't felt in a while, and you know you need to get your life right, then this is your moment. You say, Lord, I want to be yours again. I want to make you first. With every head bowed, if that's you, and you say, you know what, I want to surrender to Jesus today. When I say, Lord, Lord, When I cry out to Jesus and I say, Lord, I want to mean it because he is Lord. If that's you, lift up your hand this morning. Let me see. Who in this place would say, I need to make Jesus Lord today? Who would say, I need to make a fresh commitment? Amen. We're all going to pray together. The Bible says all you've got to do is mean it in your heart. Confess it from your mouth and you'll be saved. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, I bring you my shame. I bring you my sin. And I repent of it. I put it aside. I walk away from it. I run the other direction. And I receive your grace into my life today. Jesus, be Lord of my life. I give up my dreams. I give up my desires. I give up my way of doing things. And I choose to follow you. I'm going to do things your way. Lead me, Lord. Guide me. Walk with me every step of the way. Holy Spirit, Fill me now. Empower me to do all that you've called me to do. I love you. I dedicate myself to you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray one more time. God, I just thank you for every person here. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I know there's a lot of shame in this place. Lord, today we give our shame to you. Those bad decisions we made that inflicted that wound in us 
where we sinned against ourselves and brought shame. God, we lay that before you today, that we can stand free and we can stand pure and we can live our life for you. God, I thank you that you can heal the broken heart. Those who have given themselves away sexually before marriage, Lord, you can bring back that virginity. It can be pure as before. I just invite you to just picture yourself releasing that thing to him right now. Offering it up to him and letting and offering it up to him and letting him go. And he just speaks over you and he tells you, You are so worthy of my love. You are so valuable. You are such a treasure. You don't have to hold on to that shame one more day. God, we thank you that you died for our sin and you died for our shame. We want to do things your way, Lord. We want to be a good example to those that you place in our path to our children. We want to leave a legacy of purity in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord,